few years back in Minneapolis, I was riding a public bus along with a woman who was older and, as I remember it, much, much taller. I don't remember what she was studying, although I'm sure it wasn't literature. We talked about nothing in particular as we rode the 16 or the 50 bus down University Avenue, swaying as we stood in the crowded aisle. Then, abruptly, she asked for a book recommendation. Oh, I gushed, because the chance to recommend a book has always given me a thrill, as though I had just been asked to intervene in the fate of the planet. Do you want something that will really blow your mind? The woman, who in my memory is at least a head taller than me, turned and looked down with a pitying smile. When I retell the story, sometimes I take her part and make myself into a small-town buffoon, but sometimes I take my own part and turn her into a dull-minded apparatchik who wouldn't know a good book if it lit her brain on fire. You can guess what she said. I think I'm too old to have my mind blown. I don't remember what I ultimately recommended, or if I ultimately recommended anything at all. In most retellings, it's Saramago's Blindness, which is a work that could really blow a few synapses. Perhaps my question wasn't very well phrased. Perhaps what I meant to ask was whether she wanted a book so familiar she could predict where each and every word would go, or a book that would strike her as difficult, curious, frightening, strange. In this issue, our second, sometimes the strange is evoked by taking two familiar figures and placing them side by side. Rachel Shines battling inner demons, Tabat Sharon and Kendrick Lamar, playfully helps us reimagine Arabic and hip-hop classics. Here we see Tabata's demons become more like mental illness than real jinn, and Lamar's as more like otherworldly ghouls. They're both strangely familiarized, familiarly strange. It's important here to note a difference between the strange and the exotic. The strange unsettles and upends our predictable worlds, while the exotic is only the window dressing of the new, a pretend strangeness that is not unexpected at all. That was uh, Marshall Link's Quayley reading from the introduction to Arab Lit Quarterly. And uh, this is episode 32 of the Bullock Podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay. We're going to start out uh, talking a bit about this latest project of Marsha's, which I finally had the pleasure of perusing. Um, uh, and and, and it's, it's really something. Well, this was a strange experience for me because I'm used to reading other people's work out loud and not my own. Although it's quite a distancing experience, I, I read it as if I hadn't written it. Yeah? Is it, that possible? It, it, it did feel as if I hadn't written it. Although uh, that was me on the bus, whichever it was, the 16 or the 50. Well, maybe once you make yourself into a character in a story in a way, it's not really you anymore. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. So I really liked the... I was very struck by that simple but distinction, but very useful distinction that you make about between the exotic and the strange, which is, of course, I think, so often applicable to Arabic literature in translation, where people go looking for a certain... Like they think that they're that what they're they're looking for, what or 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 you know, publishers and translators, the market, whatever, presents something as unfamiliar. But in fact, often, it's a kind of very familiar, unfamiliar. Right? Yeah, it's a very specific if it's a type on a sand dune. <laughs> it's not unfamiliar. Right, right, yeah. Um, as opposed to something. 
I mean, and that double meaning of strange, you know, not just being odd, but simply being new, actually, and like outside, like strange to you, a stranger to you, um, which which is the the theme that that runs through this issue. Um, I mean, uh, I just have to say, I don't know where you find the time to do this. <laughs> I really don't. It's a, it's beautifully put together. There are so many like excellent contributors, like, and it's it's uh, who who does it besides you? Um, Hassan Al Mahtasab. He was the designer, so it was really Hassan and I who uh, who put it together. And do you get some editorial assistance from some volunteer help or? Um, uh, there were some people who guest edited some of the pieces. Yes. Um, in, in terms of the whole, the the weight of it fell down on myself and Hassan, yeah. And so when you, how did the, how did you come up with the theme? Like, was that something that you talked about with other people? Or did it just sort of come to you and then you send out to like a big network of potential contributors? I have this idea or like, how did, how did it coalesce? Wow. How did it coalesce? I think um, there was a group of people who, uh, who gathered around the first issue as being interested in it. And I kind of pummeled them with ideas. What if I did an issue about this? What if I did an issue about that? What do you think about this? And um, the strange seemed both specific and very flexible. Uh, The next issue is the sea, and it's the summer issue, and that was really Hassan's uh, idea. He wanted to do an issue of the sea. And since he is working entirely for free... Well, it's his turn to choose. I like that, though. There's, I mean, that is both, you know, a specific and a kind of arbitrary way. Like, there's just, like, you know, one light. But then, obviously, you know, there's a million. Right. It can be a sea of faces. It can be a sea of darkness. It, it doesn't have to be the literal Bahr, you know. Right. Right. Ah, and so, okay, so you're... But we also thought it could be our our beach read. Right, right, right. <laughs> so there will be some more sort of accessible, fun things in this forthcoming issue as well. Okay. And then people come to you with, like, texts that they are working on or that they want to translate or that they just love and they propose, you know, including those translations? Yes. And then I also have gone to people and said... Wouldn't you like to write about this? Wouldn't you like to translate this, please? Mm. Um, uh, as well. So, so it's worked both ways. Um, I've proposed to people. Um, like in, the, in this issue, Rachel Shine, I, I've read her blog, um, which is these kind of wonderful uh, mashups where she looks at both contemporary music and classical Arabic poetry. Uh, so this is part of a series of comparisons that she yes, does? Yes, she, she keeps a blog. And so uh, I asked her, hey, wouldn't you like to write something for me? Uh, so uh, I think more than proposing ideas, it's about finding people who I think have really have interesting ways of looking at the world um, or and or ways of interesting ways of looking at the world that somehow fit thematically with what we're doing. People who I would never ask to write for Arab Lit because I don't actually don't ask anyone to write for Arab Lit um, unless they say, 
I want to write about this. And, you know, uh, you can write about it for me for free if you really like. But I wouldn't go up to writers I admire. Um, I mean, maybe now somebody's going to email me and say, you came up to me and asked me to write for free. But I don't think... Um, you don't usually I don't generally. Soli- I, I, I just know. Certainly not. Um, but this... that I mean, I guess that's probably the biggest impetus. I wanted to be able to pay people. And so I, I thought creating a, a, sm- a sandbox in some way would create that ability. And to ask for certain things, to have a vision. And rather than Airblit is extremely reactionary, you know. Oh, this Larry Prize came out. This bit of news came out. This, this thing I read. Um, right, well, it's news. It's news-driven, the blog. Right. So you're saying that, okay, so because my next question was going to be, like, why? Like, why did you feel like doing No, because, I mean, like, I've worked on publications, like, not, not so much this type, more, again, like, journalistic ones. Like, the amount of work is enormous, and the amount of work to, like, double-check that everything is correct at the end. Oh, yeah, uh, we have one name misspelling in there. And, of course you do. Um, <laughs> let me tell you, the person is not pleased. Well, I know, but these things happen, like, uh, you know, you're lucky that you only have one. Like, it, this, these things happen in, like, the best of publications. There's still, you know, things that don't get caught by the team of copy editors. So that, that kind of pressure, too, like, I can... Uh, and, and so you're saying the, the what mainly drove you was to have the possibility of basically like bringing these kinds of pieces of writing well what do into I the... want to do what do I want to do yeah. I want to be solicited to work on long form pieces where I really get to think about it well I can't because I've got to be running around um you know writing all these tiny pieces for tiny me amounts of money that stack up finally to making a living um that's what I want other people to be doing too uh, it, so I, I I saw that Full Stop Quarterly is normally a free blog where they don't pay people who write for the, the general blog, although people do contribute. But then they have this thing called Full Stop Quarterly, which I contributed to a piece about um, Americans' uh, characters in Iraqi uh, novels. And after that, Experience. I really enjoyed working with the editor there, and I, you know, I, I always love to take my time to write a piece rather than just racing to do the latest thing. And I thought uh, I would, I really have long wanted to be able to pay contributors to acknowledge that what they're doing is labor and what they're doing is important and what they're doing is desired. Um, and, and so that was the, the impetus to somehow create a space where I could somehow charge some small amount of money and, and funnel that back into the contributors. Yeah. I mean, I get that. And it allows me to have more of a, of a vision than Arablet, which is much more like uh, being on a bicycle and trying to grab things off of nearby branches while I'm <laughs> racing down a hill and trying not to <laughs> fall over and get road burn all over my face. Um, I'm thinking about a number of things now that you've said about this. I mean, so, you know, I started out in journalism at a little magazine in Cairo. Yes, I remember it. <laughs> um, where people were very badly underpaid, if not not paid at all. 
and I remember, in fact, one evening where we had a big party and someone went around the room and sort of calculated all the money that all the different people were owed uh, by the publisher in like unpaid uh, salary, and it 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 added up. Um, but uh, of course, when you're I mean, it's so exciting. It was so exciting. Right. We think, loved it. Right. And I think my my partner at the time wrote sometimes for this same small, at least a few times for this same small publication as well as others. And part of that was the privilege of I, at the time, had a, a full-time position. Right. So he had the flexibility at that time. To write. To right. write. Yeah. I mean, some people worked there full-time and did not have... Uh, you know, other sources, or, or people worked there and also freelanced maybe for like international publications a little bit. I mean, we should say this is a Cairo Times, which was like right. institution of early right. of early Egyptian independent journalism, and really like a school for for a lot of people. It was a great magazine, and I don't think any of the people who were there and weren't paid for so long actually would have gone back and not worked there. That's the mm-hmm. thing is there was something. So there are sort of these experiences where um, you are, you know, they are so worthwhile in other ways. Uh, the, the, the problem with this one was that it was supposed to be paid and wasn't. That, I think, is incorrect. So it left me with, like, um, almost two contradictory feelings, that experience in journalism and, like, a subsequent one with another magazine, which was, like... Um, that uh, that all intellectual labor or this kind of writing or whatever should be paid, even if it's very little, but it should mm. never be unpaid because it's also like unsustainable to have these kinds of projects if you if you don't find a way to remunerate people and that that you know labor has value. Um, uh, and but then also with the feeling that like there are there is work that one does mainly not for money. Like, there, especially these collective experiences. Like, there's, there, there's something about being part of certain projects that um, is so worthwhile that, you know, you do... Okay, so what you end up doing is, like, subsidizing that with other work often. Right, Ab- absolutely. I, I would say that... That's how you could describe what I do is part I, I subsidize Arab Lit and Arab Lit Quarterly with all sorts of the yeah, all sorts of other jobs that I do. Right. I mean, so you do at least three projects that are not in any way commercial. So the podcast does not make I mean, so we sell I don't know, we sell a few mugs. Thank you very much, guys. We really appreciate it. But you know, um, uh, I'm not sure we've sold enough mugs for me to buy my microphone this summer. <laughs> right, but. right, exactly. And then there's the blog, and then there's there's the magazine, and then you do a bunch of other work. Right, World Kid Lit, Arab Kid Lit now. I do a, a, do a number of things that are passion projects, you could say, or some of them are sort of quasi-passion projects. Things Arab Lit is definitely no longer a passion project. It's a, it's a thing I do, I care about, but I also feel obligated to continue doing it. Do you feel like you could ever stop doing it if you didn't feel like it, or would you feel too bad? I don't know. It's a thing I think about a lot. Like, how would I stop doing it? 
what if I didn't want to do it anymore? Would I have to pretend I was dead? Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, so I used to write parts out of the time for my husband's blog when it was sort of more collective. And we kind of let that, and it was his, his blog, really, but the Arabist, but we sort of have let that just completely hibernate. It kind of just slipped off, but we were never as regular as you are. Like, you're so consistent. Like, yeah, you it's cover between it 6 all. and 7 a.m. Cairo time every morning. Yeah. And yeah, I, I feel like I have had this. Well, what if I said there was a plane crash? Then... <laughs> yeah, I don't know, because it's like, how do you let something, when you've created something... I think people do have that feeling about all sorts of like cultural projects and media projects and spaces of one kind or another that that that, that, that you create is like you you do feel like um, you, it's it's very hard to like let them die like right and it, you feel it it should be the sort of thing that has a lifespan right I mean I don't think there's any shame in doing something for a while and then not doing it anymore but it does feel something like. I'm killing it or <sighs> or it failed because I stopped doing it, which is ridiculous. You're you know? going to get like so many letters and messages after this podcast of people being like, no, Marcia, no, <laughs> don't do it. Don't pull the plug ever. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but and then for myself, this is the only thing really that I do that's a purely like for for pleasure i would say thing which i really do enjoy and you said like you said something about the magazine being a sandbox like i was trying to think about what is the quality of these kinds of projects um where uh your remuneration is like the last of your considerations and i do think it's a kind of playfulness to it like even though you take it seriously because you take play seriously right but it's that project quality where your project is like building a tree house or something right where yes. you're like super into it yeah and you're with other people so for me it's like having the chance to do something with you and that we chose to do it together yeah i think that's what is set such a grind about arab lit is that it is just me every morning um, Arab League Quarterly is, is, a, is, I mean, a lot of it comes down on me recopy editing and me, you know, me f making sure I've paid people. I think I've paid everyone. If, if I haven't, please tell me. Um, but, but it is with other people. So right. I think Arab Lit is a drag because... I'm doing it by myself in the apartment. And it feels like work as opposed to And it feels like work, yes. I'm sure in the be I mean, I know in the beginning... For a long time, it felt like some goofy thing that I was doing. Right. I mean, I think that's the magic. If you can make a fair amount of your work have that quality of play. And again, not play like I'm not taking this seriously, but oh, like absolutely. I'm so absorbed in I'm this, inventing I'm enjoying yeah. it. Mm -hmm. then, then you're like super lucky. And, uh, and in a way, you know, I think... We are super lucky to be doing, you know, to have that in 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 some of the work that we do. Um, Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of the work I do get paid for that I still feel is playfulness. I, I mean, the work that I do with Library of Arabic Literature, where I get to, I, I I'm sure that for some people this doesn't sound extremely fun, but where I get to read classical Arabic texts and think about them and talk about add them and sort of interrogate these leading scholars about them. For me, this is like 
you know, taking um, a grad school class but not actually having to do any work, just picking the brain of the person, and it's so joyful for me. Yeah, for me, it's like, it's like, it's like, so, well, no, I won't come, I won't comment on that. But I think I I totally see it. For Mm. me, it's just when I, when I wake up, and my work for the day is to read. Mm. Yes, that's always wonderful. Then I, then I think, you know, this is, this is pretty, this is pretty great. But you mentioned having, besides your own projects, like, how many jobs would you say that you have? I mean, I would say I'm doing about... I mean, remunerated jobs, I would say I'm doing about 15 at any given time in terms of readers' reports, editing people's novels, editing people's translations, um, uh, preparing a talk, uh, traveling to uh, go somewhere to uh, teach some, uh, like I am at the end of the month in in Lagos. I do a lot of just to to even just to keep track of. Yeah, I uh, that is not my strong suit, uh, keeping track of everything. So I do rely on the kindness of people saying, "Didn't I mean mostly for remunerated work?" I I force myself to stay on top of it. It's the uh, you know sixty two thousand tasks that align with the other things that I really lose track of. Right. No, I mean, like, a deadline has a clarifying effect. Like, even if you forget it, somebody will remind you, and you'll have another 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever, and it gets done. I actually, I feel like it's one of the things, I can't imagine a life without deadlines. I've been doing it for so long that it sort of has this, it has a kind of, actually, I have, I enjoy that effect of having a thing to work towards. But I find when I have a lot of them, I start to get really panicky. Like I spend a lot of time just making, like staggering them. And uh, uh, it's like having a really big to-do list. It's it's a bit overwhelming. Yeah. yeah sometimes I just kind of don't look at my to-do list and just kind of <laughs> dive in and start writing some nonsense. Yeah. And on top of that, and like we've talked about this a bit, but like then there's the challenge, I think, of also being asked. And again, I think this happens to you more often than to me, but like basically being asked to do work for no remuneration in this kind of new, which isn't it's not unique to like the literary or cultural field but I think it's probably one of the fields in which it's more common than others you know these sort of constant requests to like participate in things where the supposed intangible compensation is just heightening your profile right I I would say there's there's two situations in which it really bothers me and uh, one is when it's magazines that are making a profit and don't tell me I, I, I now I, I at this point I clarify uh, this is a paid opportunity right but it's sort of top level top tier magazines where they just ask you to write something and, and then, never mention and then, compensation oh, you, yeah and they don't mention compensation and then when after nine rounds of edits and your piece is finally given published you yeah. ask they're like oh well this was for free Oh really? <laughs> okay, that's. Uh, I I guess I should have checked that out first. I've um, also learned to ask, but it's true that it's not. 
uh, it's not an easy question to ask. I mean, it becomes easier the more you ask it. But in the beginning, especially that like when you're in an initial conversation with an editor about doing this kind of work, you're in this almost sort of like... Um, know a little bit sort of like mutual a new relationship yeah like mm-hmm. you're on a date you're on a like yeah. email date or whatever like you're sort of like trying to impress each other you more trying to impress them right. than vice versa and uh bringing up money feels really awkward uh yeah and- particularly uh, for me it's been a problem when it's like a prestigious a publication oh well, of course yes i'd love to write for you yeah i, fi- I find that i find that kind of shocking because if they are like a Maybe they would pay less than you think, but that they pay nothing at all. Again, I think it's a reasonable assumption to think that they would pay you. Like, <laughs> it's not it's not a reasonable thing to think that you're asking for content for free. That has happened to me, though. Like, of course, that has that has happened. Or you or you ask, and it's like really, really, like not just like not enough. Right. Well, it's often. Not enough, but I only really feel upset if it's, oh, no, well, sorry. Of course, we don't pay. I mean, I just, Not yeah. people like you, anyway. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Surely I, just, I know you pay some of your writers. Right, and the assumption, I don't understand uh, what the editors think the life of freelance writers could possibly be, that they think that you have large amounts of time that you can and in you know and and work that you can literally just give away right well at no cost this, this segues into the second thing that really upsets me which is publishers particularly university press publishers who expect somebody to translate an entire book uh, sometimes that the publisher has approached you with for, for free because oh it's in academia oh we're a nonprofit oh of course we don't pay oh wow uh, well you're getting paid so clearly there is some money flowing right. through your university is getting prestige from this um, you are selling some copies so right no the person who's commissioning this they clearly have a salary and like benefits and stuff right. they're they're not they wouldn't consider it tenable for their like I find. Yeah, I find I, I didn't actually know the, how common of a practice that was. Um, and I find it, again, shocking. And I don't understand how you can. It's just disrespectful to people's work. And I think everyone's work. Well, I think should be respected. So, like, yes, I think this comes out of this academic old-fashioned academic world where people had tenure and a salary and where they published as part of their expectation of reaching out to the public. But now, if you imagine that more than half of people teaching at universities are adjuncts and that many of the people who are translating these books are in no way affiliated with the university at all, except for publishing, are are freelancers, uh, this system... It doesn't work. And, it's, and honestly, it doesn't take that much thought to figure that. Like, for example, um, the public, the magazine Merip, mm. which has a lot of academics as contributors, but also non-academics, 
at one point had a policy where like they didn't pay academics when they wrote for them on the assumption that okay people who have a tenured position like they're expected to produce knowledge for public consumption and you know they they're part of this ecosystem but people who were journalists or freelancers or like grad students they would pay a little fee like it doesn't it's not that hard to differentiate right no women's review of books i know i've written for them and they do the same thing and they paid me a decent amount and then if you're a tenured professor at oxford they don't pay you anything it's not that hard to take these things into account and yeah like because again, it gets back to my original thing about like, don't start a magazine if you can't pay people who work there long term, even mm. if it's wonderful fun, and everybody will do it for several years and like, look back on it fondly. But, you know, you do have to have some model to make it work. Like, don't try to have if you have an academic press where like, you can't pay translators, then like, I'm sorry, right, you, you don't, th that's that then you have to reexamine your model. I mean, and the truth is, most American universities have tons of resources. My alma mater, Stanford, is currently think, trying to, has just cut the funding to their university press, even though, you know, they have like gazillions of dollars, and I don't understand why they're doing this. But the university can subsidize the press in a lot of cases generously, and the press can pay people for their work. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of these financial distinctions in academia that baffle me I you know went to Yale for to give a talk and then was told no that we we've run out of money so there's no honorarium and what that night while I was having uh, dinner with some grad students they said oh they must have paid you really well to come here because of course they've got so much money like well yes there's money floating around but right it, it ain't for me and it's and it's and I think Especially in the intellectual field, like, or do, in, in, in cultural work, it's always awkward to talk about money. And then one is, like, extra hesitant to talk about it in certain settings. Like, if, if people were asking you to come, I mean, there's other forms of labor where, like, nobody would consider doing it for free. But, but this kind of work, right. because it's sort of, like, all wrapped up in a little bit of social prestige and also, like, in this general environment with this, what's, like, supposedly kind of, like, non-commercial, then you also, you know, money never gets talked about, which leads to sort of, like, which is convenient. It's always convenient when people don't talk about how much they get paid. Like, right. uh, it's the same thing in the American workplace. Right. Um, where I think in, like, you know, lots of other fields, people don't fly across the country and attend something for three days and, like, not get remunerated, you know? Uh, so, I, I don't know. Yeah, but, and, and then on the other hand, for instance, I gave a talk over, over Skype at a community college in, uh, in the Midwest. And they, they paid me because I think they would not have asked you know, they don't think you're doing it there for the prestige. Right. It's not a coincidence that it's it's an Ivy League school that, like, doesn't think there's that much of a need to pay an right. honorarium. And maybe it's not a... I mean, similarly, maybe... I mean, I don't know the skills at all the different magazines and whatever, but, like, yeah, it's sort of... It's the more prestigious the venue, the more somehow you're they may think that they don't need to actually compensate you because it's just an honor. Just right. To, it's an honor to write for us. Right. Um, and so I think what ends up happening 
for a lot of us, and so, I mean, certainly in my, in my case is that, but I think for almost everyone who's working in like writing about literature, writing about books today, is that that's maybe sort of the work that you enjoy the most and that you have sort of work to be able to do, but that's not actually what you make your living doing. I mean, I suspect that the contributors, all the contributors to most of the magazines that I most enjoy, that they have other jobs. Right, right. Well, uh, I mean, certainly editing somebody's book for them is a lot, it pays a lot better and, and steadier than than anything you can well I don't know I don't write for these sort of top tier magazines but I don't I don't think anyone pays well enough for you to make a living as a freelancer no I don't think like not the I mean that's why a lot of the contributors to say like the New York Review books or the London Review books are are academics or Mm. they're or they're writers who write you know books themselves but I don't think anyone is supporting themselves as a book critic hardly I mean Right. Well, I don't. I have trouble thinking of someone who has that. I mean, I guess you know James Wood in the New Yorker. Sure, but he he also has sort of royalties and all sorts of other. Right, things. but I guess if you're if you're reviewing books for the New Yorker, that that's that's you know you're being you're being paid very properly. But I'm just saying that profession I think hardly exists anymore. Um, Although, so I think the desire. For both to have it and to do it is remains as vibrant. And, and so there are people out there trying to create new spaces, whether, you know, it's for money or, for, or not. And, and really with this desire to engage in the conversation about books. Well, because, I mean, people who read also, I think, I think the Venn diagram of people who read and people who have an interest in writing, right. there's like a huge... So if you read a lot, you're somebody who probably wants to also write some way, like respond in writing to your... Um, and yes, I agree. Like, I don't think there's any less of, a, of an interest in it. And it, it may be that it's not a terrible thing for it today to be you know, not anyone's principal career, but rather sort of one facet of uh, a sort of multifaceted uh, career that, that, a, that a lot of people have and, and that you, you do it for, for the pleasure that it gives you. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. but you have to have some, some other some other aspects and I think that's also pretty common nowadays is that people have like two or three sort of like interlinked jobs right yeah I read a piece and now I can't remember who wrote it or even where recently trying to put a stake through the heart of this golden age of literary criticism mid-20th century everything was perfect why can't we go back to having that again well no it was it was not perfect in all sorts of ways um, including that it was so self-contained and exclusive. Right. I mean, it was like pretty much entirely centered in New York, right? right. Mm-hmm. Which Around is- certain kind of literature and for certain kind of people who could get into this. Um, and, and now there's, it's much more riotous and uh, all kinds of different literature are being written about in a serious way. And of course, yeah, we're not making a living at it, which sucks, but... 
I mean, I almost find it impossible to, like, it seems to have as your job to be like a movie reviewer or a book reviewer as your full-time job has always struck me as like so unattainable as, you know, as your right. full-time yeah, job yeah, yeah. Uh, that I'd never even seriously considered it. Um, yeah, I suppose I never really, I guess I'm just not the person who's, who sits back and thinks about what am I going to do with my life? You know, I just kind of dive in and start doing stuff. Right. My parents gave me the, I still can't decide if it's like excellent or terrible advice. Like 20 years ago, they were like, just do what you love and things will fall into place. Oh, uh, that's so nice. It was very sweet. It was very sweet. I'm still not sure if it was my, good advice well, or bad see, or both. My parents were much more of that. You're going to be a failure. You've got to have a very good job, a stable job. Whereas I was like, no. But so... Speaking about creating a uh, constellation of, uh, of jobs around literature, uh, one of the things I think that becomes problematic, and I'm not saying this was not problematic in the mid-20th century, I think, you know, in this sort of alleged golden age of literary criticism, I, I think it probably always is, is all these conflicts of interest. So if I'm, you know, working with a publisher and I'm also reviewing books and I'm also editing things for authors, you know, where is, where does one personality mm. uh, begin and where does one end and am I able to be as critical as, as, I, as I should be, as I want to be, as, as something deserves to be or, or do I, you know, hold back because I'm for whatever reason. Well, so if you work with somebody on their book, you try to avoid reviewing it. If you like worked would closely. Not, I certainly would not review a right. book that I worked on. No, that would be... I mean, I think you've got to have these right. basic lines. If It you, makes things easier. If Yeah. No, I mean, I think just sort of more generally, like, here you are in the field. Um, you, you know, I, I gave a really scathing review to a, a book. Um, and now is this, no, will this publisher even tell me what's coming out next? Right, um, right, because you're basically doing both book reviewing, cultural journalism, which right. requires access. Access in good contacts. Right. And then sort of some work with authors on like particular projects. Right, and readers' reviews for publishers. Right. Uh, which is basically, you know, a book review, private, a private audience book review. Yeah, it's complicated. Uh, so yeah, it... Um, you, you and I assume that this this kind of work that I've crafted out for myself is similar to what other people are doing. And then sometimes sometimes authors must come to you with like misplaced hopes or expectations that you might promote their work, right? Like, do you get that as because absolutely? In fact, I get authors who are very angry with me. So let's say I edited somebody's book for them that is one job and then this author is furious at me for not promoting that work once it's been published right well that i'm sorry that i don't do that i do right. not promote things i think that is the line i've had to draw like i, I don't do any pr i can't do any pr yeah. anyway i would be terrible at it <laughs> so so nobody's losing out in this equation. But but the, but that the expectation is that because I did something for you with my editing 
right. world that then I would talk about, write about, review your book, promote it to others. No, sorry. Yeah. It's almost, you want to be a little offended. Like, do you think that my, the other writing that I do in other books is like paid for promotion? Like you're misunderstanding what I do. do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I get, um, I always get, I get nervous whenever I publish anything, like really nervous um, because I always expect there to be some mistake and I expect somebody to be unhappy. Um, and I find it a comfort to like be so far away <laughs> and not know most publishers, writers, people at magazines, like, you know, have like zero really like contacts in the New York literary world never have to run into anybody. Mm, yeah, no, it, I definitely run into people at book fairs and literature fests, and uh, and there are you know some people who would like to see me dead. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people, oh well, emotions do run high. I guess. Yeah, I mean, but I think you know all you can do is be like conscientious and clear and. Certainly with journalism, you run into similar things. Like, you run into people all the time who have uh, basically, like, very little sense of what the actual professional standards and uh, demarcations are within journalism. So, you know, who think they can, like, rewrite their quotes or, you know, see a story before publication or who think it's a negotiation. Right. No, I I had... Who was it? I can't remember now. It was some organization in the Emirates, and they wrote me saying, this is the quote we want you to put in this piece. I think it was some PR agency, probably. Like, well, that's very interesting. Thank you for having that opinion. (laughs) Right. No, I know. I mean, the problem is that the more actors deal with media environments in which the media mostly does just, like, reprint PR statements, Mm. the more they have the expectation that that's what right the, how how things how things will work, um, so then you have to like re-explain to people kind of like really basic things right and I I mean I would want to say that what I do I'm never trying to catch anyone out you know I'm the, most of what I do it's not hardball you know I'm not right I'm not Isaac Chotner or whatever I'm not, <laughs> I'm not having anybody fall on their sword. <laughs> Um, but, you know, there's a certain standard of the quote that they sent me was utterly boring and stupid. No, I mean, that's the problem is that when people write their own quotes, they always write something because people are always conservative mm. and less spontaneous um, when they write. That's like the whole essence of a quote. You always get something verbally that's that's different and, and people want to clean it up and it always makes it less good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I know you have to really push, push back on that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I guess I I feel like I was painting myself as some sort of evil person that authors are out there trying to murder. Um, (laughs) I don't think there are that many authors. I I I was going to say, yeah, I think you're generally very popular with authors. It's just that the one or two, I mean, it's the same thing. Like I have had very few not really ever like a big controversy over anything I've mm. published. 
But the times where I've had an argument with somebody, the times where someone has been unhappy, of course, stay with you forever. Right. Like, right. you know, where you sort of think back about how you could have handled it. I mean, it's, a, it's an emotional thing. It's, uh, it's the ethics of the profession in action, right? right. It's never comfortable. Right. Because somebody wants something and you want something else. And you know, like no, you can't both come out of the situation happy, but it's tough to make another person unhappy. Yeah, it's very hard. Um, that's, I guess that's why these internested um, relationships, which always were true in publishing. You know, there's author right. A reviewing author B's book and then author B is, you know, it's, it's people... If, yeah, if, if anything, it was, it was more in incestuous right. in mid-20th right. century New York than ever right. since, right. right? Like, they all knew each other, either hated each other or, you know, married to each other. <laughs> right. Right. So, so yeah, possibly it's you, you, there's less conflict of interest now in some ways because I'm never going to know most of these authors, um, it, at least in real life. And, and so then that makes it easier to try and be honest you know, certainly you don't ever want anyone to feel hurt by what you're writing, but that's the game. You don't really have control over yeah. that, though. I mean, I think people still have a feeling, people who care about literature, let's say. Most people, you know, don't. Right. I mean, we know we know where we stand in the broader culture. <laughs> we know we're in a niche. Um, but, you know, people who, who, who care about reading and writing do have the sense that anyone reviewing a book or writing about literature has some sort of power, uh, some sort of privilege, if you will. And I think, you know, or influence, right? Mm. I suspect that people overestimate it. Well, if you want to talk about sort of how, um, what people write, because these are the metrics that are sort of easy to measure, right? How, how what you write influences book sales. It's, it doesn't at all. You, you know, book sales are influenced by Reese Witherspoon putting it in her But it influences Instagram. people's feelings. <laughs> I mean, one hopes to sort of speak to the broader culture and that language matters and that literature matters and that you're joining a, a critical conversation. Right. Um, but yeah, in terms of like really making a difference in somebody's livelihood or uh right so the act the 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 economic impact is limited which is good because frankly who wants that responsibility yeah like no, i don't no. i don't i would not yeah. think that, that that you have that kind of sway i think it's like too much um i also think uh like because we all i mean because most of us like to be paid attention to when you write for a, you know, for a living, for a public, uh, that's something that feels like your opinion is being paid attention to. So it's perceived as like very influential, mm. you know, but uh, how much like authority you actually have in the culture, I think is like overestimated it's a little bit the way people feel about academics where like you know there's such a resentment of like academics you know at their authority their supposed intellectual authority but there's a kind of like obliviousness to like how economically precarious they are especially increasingly today how circumscribed their ability actually to say 
everything they think is, how painstakingly, I mean, first of all, how much work it takes to get into these positions and how not everybody who gets there comes at all from like a, you know, very privileged background necessarily. And then like how much people agonize over what they say and what they write and how, you know. I think that the that there is such an intersection between the precarity of academia and the precarity of the the literary world um, and, yeah, a misunderstanding of, of, of both and feeling that... Uh, I mean, there was a, uh, a press that didn't pay me for six months and... Uh, and it was it was you know only five hundred dollars right but and to them to somebody who's got a full time job and health insurance and whatever five hundred dollars I guess is you know in the margins one way or the other it's my whatever going crazy money but no for me it's not I, I needed that and and I think that this person who has this job with vacation and other things perceives me in such a way that. Um, I don't know. I guess I don't do a good enough job of communicating. No, I'm working for the money because I <laughs> need the money. I mean, it's just yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what goes through the head. I think one one thing about sort of a lot of us who've been through the experience of freelancing and and working lots of gigs and stuff is like you would not do that to someone else. You would always be very. I do think sort of uh, people who are outside of the institution come low in the hierarchy because they're never going to see you again. They don't even know you. They don't. Right. I mean, I had an experience with someone at the at the New York Times actually who like didn't pay me for six months. Right. And uh, and like when you're having to like remind a person again and again and again, like right. oh, of can something you fill that, out the invoice again that oh, should can you be fill their out the job again. And to their credit, then like everyone, once I told someone else there what what had happened, they like sorted it out quickly. It was just one individual who mm. just didn't care about me getting paid but she really cared about me filing columns on time <laughs> i mean you know right these are just these are just gripes over 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 the overall situation i guess okay i have a question mm. if if money wasn't an issue at all what is the one or two jobs that you would do full-time Okay, if money, if I'm suddenly, I win if you the lottery. Could do, if you could do, no, no, I mean, if, if, if you could, let's assume that whatever you did paid the same decent yearly salary, what's the thing you'd want to do? I would want to write, I, I would still want to do a lot of different things. Um, I would want to have the magazine. Um, I, would, I would want to write long form pieces. I would want to give up writing short pieces on tight turnaround times. So less news, less news, more, more long form pieces. Yeah, um, and I would, I would give up ghostwriting. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I would give up editing books unless I really love the book. Mm. And okay. I would, I would give up editing people's translations, especially if they're bad. Okay, so you give up like half your jobs. Yeah, yeah, I would. Three out of, like, six. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some modified, like, only if I really like it. Right, right, right. So, you know, I, I love a lot of what I do, uh, but but that, that it's, like, it's like the life of the adjunct. Like, well, I would like to be teaching uh, 
two courses or three courses, right. not five. Well, because the actual quality of the work, like you can be doing the same work, but if you're doing a different amount of it and you're being different a different amount of time to do it, the work itself becomes different. Absolutely. That is what... So I feel this agony of producing things that are just mediocre over and over again. Okay, agony is the wrong word. <laughs> but it doesn't make me feel happy to produce things that are mediocre. What makes me... I think you're being way too harsh, by the way. That's not... That's but not I, the word. I find it's much hard more... to be like... It's hard to feel like you're being original on a... I think this is like, you know, in, in all forms of journalism, like, because there's only so many ways you can tell... You know, you can tell people about something that's happened. Right, right. Anyway, I would like more time and space to work on long projects. Yeah. If, if, if I had all the money in the world, you know, as a child would say. Yeah. I, I don't want all the money in the world. <laughs> Just, you know, whatever. A, a middle-class salary and a health insurance would be my dream come true. Is I'm trying to think now for myself... I think it would be something similar. Like there's some gigs that I like don't mind doing and actually I quite enjoy and the institutions are nice and everything. Mm. But like if I didn't if I didn't need it probably I I wouldn't Right. Like it would be nice to just concentrate down onto only the stuff that's like really ambitious. Like if I only had to do one piece a month and half of them were book reviews and half of them were reported pieces where I went somewhere mm. you know like if there was you know if I could like fly to Algeria next month and spend a month just reporting something about Algeria and maybe reading some books oh I also Algeria. love talking to students I really enjoy that but I hate doing it for free oh oh like giving talks yeah yeah no why should you well I mean, time, time, time is so valuable. <laughs> um, and then the the other thing that I, I wanted to mention is this, uh, that, that there is a, because, as you say, the Venn diagram of people who read and people who write is, is nearly overlapping. I mean, I think of it sometimes like it's people who talk and people who listen. You know, if you're involved in this conversation as a reader, as a listener, well, Many people, of course, want to talk back and become a part of the conversation. Right. Um, and so this creates um, a lot of people who want to be published, want to find a way to have their voice heard in this system, um, who are willing to pay money. And I think that there is like a relatively... Scam is maybe too harsh of a word, but taking people's money, um, some of them who maybe can't afford it for, for services that are not really services. You mean like writing workshops and retreats and helping you edit and promote your I think your it, manuscript yeah. I mean, kind a, of a, stuff? A, a friend of mine had uh, just sent me an email about the burgeoning business of English language literary agents in, in the Gulf. And so people coming and saying, oh, if you pay me $8,000, I'll take your book to the London Book Fair. And then the person sort of disappears. Oh, or gosh. I'll, I'll, trans, I'll create, help you create a bilingual picture book. And then it's terrible and the quality is awful. So, you know, sort of people finding that there's a business opportunity to be made. And I think there, there probably are all sorts of business opportunities to be made that, um, whatever, too dumb or too... 
Well, you're not interested. You're not interested in this one, right? Um, no, I'm not interested in taking advantage of people. Um, I feel like desperate would be writers, right? Exactly. So I think that that there is money being made off that. I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean. I feel like in the people I know, but this is a product of my life, the number of people who want to write or have, in fact, written, I mean, I'm getting to the age where, like, a lot of people know have written a book. Sure. Yes. Um, it, there's, like, they're, like, really overrepresented. <laughs> like, there's a lot of writers and would-be writers and people who may not ever write a book but probably could write a pretty pretty good book if right. they sat down to do it. Um, I mean, I would... If I didn't know that it's probably a scam, I would be the sort of person who would like to pay somebody some money to help you to help me, um, you know, right. organize, place, and and publish a book. Right. No, it's very. T- it's like getting a personal trainer when you like right. can't quite get into yes, shape. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. It's very appealing. I totally agree. Like, but actually, I'd be more into like someone who comes to my house every day and makes me write. <laughs> kind of help you need not someone who's gonna like promote it i need someone who just shows up at 9 a.m every morning and is like you know 10 pages by noon <laughs> that's what a personal trainer does you need writing trainers right okay. that no that is i think an honest business to get into well i'm willing to come here <laughs> What else did I want to talk about in this episode in which we are sort of talking about the our 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 life as people who write about write about writing write about writing i guess I guess the other thing is like when I was thinking about this, I was thinking that the other thing that sort of defines a lot of my, my reporting and my writing about writing is that it's almost always related to the to the Arab world. Like when people ask me what I do, mm-hmm. I usually say, I write about books and usually books that are related to the Middle East and North Africa. Like it has this sort of geographic component. And um, and I was thinking, how do I feel about that? That, that I sort of review books that have like a certain field of books, right? right? Um, and I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the only reason that I review books from the Arab world is just because I, like, you know, happened to move to Cairo, uh, um, let's see, 18 years ago or something. Like, if I had it moved was, to yes. Spain, I'd be probably writing about Spanish literature. Is it 18 years ago? Oh, then it must be 19 years ago for me. Well, I just, I, I, I approximate. <laughs> okay, I, I don't we, think it was that long ago, actually. But anyway, 2003. Three, so uh, no, two thousand two, so seventeen years ago for me. All right. Well, it was eighteen years ago for me then. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, so yes, I by chance moved to Cairo, and and it is much easier to pitch things if you do have a niche. I do sometimes feel trapped by it. This is, I I started this gig for Book Riot, um, to give because they. <laughs> The the gig is that you write six articles every three months, and then they pay you sort of a flat fee for it. Mm-hmm. But they can be anything. You just put them into the system yourself. I mean, they, they do some vetting up front uh, in terms of who they take on, and then you write whatever you want. And so this was 
I, I you know, I, this is my way to write about uh, Indian language literatures or um, Slovenian sci-fi or whatever, whatever I feel like. Although still, what, where is my base of knowledge and where do I know what's happening and where do I feel competent to write about is largely the same thing that I've been writing about for and so have you been years. have you been writing mostly about about Arabic literature translation or have you branched out to something I have branched out a bit uh, but I would still say a bit <laughs> I mean it makes so so I have the same feeling that like I read literature from all over right of but I only usually write about literature that has a connection to this part of the world and I th- I, I do think also it helped when I was starting out to have a kind of focus, right? Right. Um, to have a niche, as you said, and and also maybe to be able when pitching to editors, like they don't know anything about this part. So you're bringing them something new, something they've never heard of. Right. Um, and you're bringing them maybe with some context that other writers might right. not well, have. Right, well, that's the thing is, is that if I'm trying to write about something from somewhere else, how do I know what's been written in this area before, what's been published here before, how is this in conversation with a constellation of other books? If I'm coming cold to a new area of literature, right, I might be making a fool of myself. Although reviewers do it all the time, and I think it depends on the type of review you write. Like, I think there's a kind of reviewer, if you're very aware of your ignorance, mm. you review it as, you know, here I am, a reader with a little background encountering this, this literary experience, you know, and, and you don't try to, like, contextualize it a lot because you actually can't play that role, right? right? You you read it as the average reader, presumably, you know, uh, that you're writing for might. So so you do that less. I mean, for better or for worse, I um, am I am reviewing a book that's not, that's, that's, but it's still within my wheelhouse because it's a translation from Italian, mm-hmm. and I've been wanting to write about Italy because I grew up there, and I don't know why. I've n- never written anything about the country I grew up in, and so uh, I'm kind of excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and still I feel like I need to do a ton of background reading because... I'm less, I'm literally less familiar with Italian political history than I am with, like, Egyptian, probably. Sure. Like, having, and the other thing is, I'm enjoying this book a lot, I'm, it's a collection, I'm really excited about it, I'm, but, but there's another book about Egypt that I think I'm going to write about next, and, like, when I start, I just read a couple pages and I had to put it down because I was like, I'm not going to touch this now. Be- but I'm like so much, I have such stronger feelings about that one. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, I do have very strong feelings often about books from this part of the world just because I'm here. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't know. Like, and I, so I think you have to write about things that provoke a strong reaction in you. Absolutely. One way or the other or, and or multiple ways. And if it's a place that you know and you lived and you care about, like, it's just the chances that that's going to happen right. are high. Right. Well, it certainly has to come through in your writing that you cared about what you wrote, what you read one way or the other. Right. Right. Otherwise, why does anyone want to read it? Although I do sometimes, like, I do sometimes wonder about... I mean, there are other books that I have strong feelings about, too, but I don't usually pitch them. Yeah, no, no. And I don't get I, asked yeah. to write them, at, mostly. Like, right. I'm also now in a position where usually the books that people bring to me are right. books that have some relationship. Right. Yeah, somebody brought me a book about, well, a PR person said, Why, do you run a write about this book? 
Uh-huh. It's about Cyprus. And I thought, Cyprus? What does that have to do with me? Uh, like in the big me. geographical region? <laughs> right. yeah, it's, it's close-ish. It's close-ish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, but th- that was my reaction. Like, I didn't even look at what kind of book it was. But Cyprus? What? <laughs> I mean, and, and of course, I'm supposed to be a Russian literary specialist. Yeah, I mean, so you could go back to that. Right. I, I could. I could. Um, I, I get cold instantly thinking about it, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I had such a great passion for Russian literature, and then I was living in Khabarovsk. And I did love the people who were my friends, and I did have a fantastic experience, but it was really, it was too cold. So in the end, <laughs> in the end our interest in Arabic literature comes down to climate. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. It's true that I have always enjoyed being in a warm part of the world, a warm and very sunny part of the world. Yeah, I mean, having grown up in Minnesota, ridden on the 1650 bus in the absolute dire cold, you know, I'm still trying to warm up. (laughs) All right, well, I think we should wrap it up there. All right. Thank you for spending this time with me. Thanks for talking as usual, and um, we will be back in a couple weeks. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye.